Hi, and welcome to the Palliators Podcast. I'm your host, fellowship-trained hospice and palliative medicine physician, Dr. Tara Kateen. This podcast is for healthcare professionals who want to become more comfortable and more confident in caring for their chronically ill and terminally ill patients. With the help of the physicians who trained with me, we hope to provide education and to promote palliative care one podcast at a time. We're so glad to have you here. Hi, everybody. Today, I want to talk about quality of life. This is something that I talk to my residents about fairly often, and it all started because of Dr. Michael Willoughby. He's one of my favorite palliative care physicians and recruited me to my current job. Then, before I even worked here a year, that goober left the organization to go to another job. When I mention him to my residents, I jokingly tell them he abandoned me, but he remains one of my favorite people. One of the things that he and I used to talk about a lot was quality of life, because he really didn't like the phrase. And because of that, I jokingly used to pepper our conversations with it. Of course, we were friends, and we were both really on the same page. He used to talk to the residents who were rotating through the palliative care department about quality of life. Now that he's moved on to another job, I feel I need to pay homage to him by talking about the phrase when I have residents working with me. And somehow, it's become a hot button for me, too. Thank you, Michael. Like many things in medicine, we use expressions as shortcuts to quickly get to the point instead of beating around the bush. It becomes shorthand that we generally use behind the scenes with our colleagues. After I started working with Dr. Willoughby, the phrase, quality of life, has taken on a more unpleasant meaning behind the scenes for me. For me, it started with getting consults that said something along the lines of, this patient has a poor quality of life and still wants, and I quote, everything done, and to be a full code. Please discuss treatment options, hospice, and code status. Often when I get a referral like this that specifically comments about someone's poor quality of life, I'll meet with the patient and family or with the surrogate and find out that they think that life is just fine, if not great. So where is the disconnect? Instead of describing someone's life in the way that that particular person would, their lives are described the way the referrer perceives it. Typically, the person making the referral is relatively young, healthy, and highly functioning, and rarely gets significantly ill. Aside from their patients, they really don't have many close relationships with people who are chronically ill. The referrers are not using any quality-of-life tools, and they're not asking the patients about their feelings about their quality of life. So in essence, the referrer is making a judgment call without knowing what's important to the patient or the patient's loved ones. There are a variety of of quality-of-life tools that have been around for decades. I'll put links to websites and articles about quality-of-life instruments and discussion of their use and validation in the show notes. Quality of life is complex and specific to a person's own perception of their experience. The World Health Organization has described quality of life as an individual's perception of their position in life in the context of the culture and value systems in which they live and in relation to their goals and expectations, standards, and concerns. The World Health Organization, in collaboration with 15 centers around the world, has developed two instruments for measuring quality of life and there are other measurement tools as well. In caring for patients, we have to understand it's not just their physical health that contributes to their quality of life, 
The measurement tools often use several domains to help understand how someone perceives their quality of life. Not only does their disease or health status affect their perception, so do treatment interventions, social interactions, financial security, or the lack thereof, among other things. Quality of life can be fluid, too. Expectation of physical abilities can change. In an earlier podcast, I referred to someone who talked about the importance of his ability to run a mile in his 20s. He described himself as a runner, not a jogger. He said that if he couldn't run a mile, he'd rather not live. Then, in time, he changed his mind. As long as he could jog a mile, that would be fine. Then it became walking a mile. He eventually realized that there may come a day when he would just be content to make it to his front porch, by whatever means, and sit on his front porch to watch his grandchildren. People who have identical illnesses and identical abilities may have different expectations and perception of what their quality of life is. One person's experience is just that. One person's experience. Everyone is different, and the opinion or perception of it is in the eye or the body of the beholder. If a patient can't express how they feel about their lives and what's important to them, this is a time where their loved ones or surrogates can play an important part in helping to understand and to help with decision-making. After all, they're more likely to know them better than we do. I have known many people who knew for certain that they would or would not want a particular intervention if they were ever in a certain healthcare situation. When they found themselves in that specific healthcare situation, they no longer felt the same way. They changed their minds about what they absolutely knew they would not choose. I've had patients who knew that they would never want to or never consent to be intubated or on the vent who later changed their minds. I've had friends who were certain they would never want attempts at resuscitation if they were ever in cardiopulmonary arrest. Yet, when it came right down to making a decision to be recorded in their medical charts, they wanted to be a full code. Sometimes our decisions about health care are based on what we think our health care team will do if we choose not to be a full code. In the old days, some people thought that if you were a DNR, you would be put in a room with the door closed while healthcare folks walked away and then provide no further treatment and wait for death to come. Obviously, that is not the intent of a DNR. DNR is strictly meant for cardiopulmonary arrest. It does not mean do not treat. So also, it's important to help our patients sort out misconceptions as well. That way they can make well-informed decisions. Sometimes people have a misunderstanding about the outcome of CPR. Again, this is something to help them understand so they can make wise decisions. Look at the show notes for links related to outcomes of CPR. So let me get back to the typical consult that gets me on my high horse about quality of life. One of my favorite patients, if not my favorite patient, was one of the patients that got that kind of consult. Straight from admission, the referral for palliative care was placed because his quality of life was poor, and yet he still wanted to be a full code. I got to know this patient very well. He loved his life. He did have some physical limitations because of his health, but he didn't have a terminal diagnosis, and he felt his life was very full. He used all of his resources to live well. 
I've talked about this patient before in an earlier podcast. He had had a tracheostomy, bilateral upper extremity amputations below the elbow. He had a partial amputation of both of his feet. He had been very independent. He was the breadwinner for his family. He took care of his sick wife. He also took care of an ill son. He wanted to continue to do as much as he could for himself. He wanted to be pushed by the physical therapist to work as hard as he could to continue to be able to walk. He didn't want help or need help putting on his prosthetic limbs. He managed to continue to look after those he loves from the hospital room. And he was one of those patients that I got that kind of referral on. No one asked him about his quality of life or how he felt about his life before placing that consult. It was simply assumed that he had had a poor quality of life. Now granted, when he came in, he was very ill, and it was uncertain if he would survive the night. Still, his quality of life was judged on one moment in time. After his hospitalization and some intensive rehabilitation, he resumed his usual life. That was years ago, and he's not been rehospitalized since. He taught me a lot about advocating for himself, and he taught me about resourcefulness. Let me share an example of this. He taught me a trick with his hospital room door. He used to like to keep his door open just so. There was a plastic sheet like a kick plate over the lower half of the door to protect it from damage from equipment. It worked just like a mirror. If he had the door open just right from his angle in the bed, he could see the entire nurse's station and hallway beside it. If he called for assistance, he would watch how the staff at the nurse's station responded, and they had no idea. He would watch the staff as they entered and as they exited without their realizing. Before I met him, I might have thought if I had ever had seemingly similar disabilities that I might not want life-saving or life-prolonging interventions. He showed me how full of life we can be in this condition. He showed me that you can continue to help yourself and others despite what others might consider severe limitations. On the other hand, Another favorite patient was an elderly man who lived with his son and his son's family. He had been growing more and more debilitated over the year prior to admission. He was hospitalized because of episodes of ventricular tachycardia that was discovered when he was brought to the emergency department when he began having seizure-like activity. This man was in his 90s. He was cognitively intact. He recognized that he was growing more and more debilitated. His biggest problem with growing more debilitated was that he felt like he was becoming a burden on his family. He was worried that it may be time for him to go to a nursing home. His health care team did not think that he had a poor quality of life. The palliative care service was consulted because he had refused a cardiac ablation. When the residents and I discuss scenarios of what this patient's future might have looked like, it goes something like this. What would be the worst outcome for this patient if he goes for cardiac ablation? Uh, He dies on the table surrounded by strangers? Okay, so what's the best outcome if he has the ablation? He has a completely successful cardiac ablation, returns to the CCU, stabilizes and goes to a regular unit, gets physical therapy, occupational therapy, and then goes to a nursing facility for rehab. 
He probably never returns home to be with his family. He probably gets a variety of infections, most commonly pneumonias or UTIs. He possibly gets pressure wounds. More than likely, he returns to the hospital for treatment of an infection or sepsis, then returns to the nursing facility, then returns to the hospital, then gets discharged back to the nursing facility and repeat ad nauseum until death. So if the healthcare team had successfully persuaded this patient into having the cardiac ablation, neither the best-case scenario nor worst-case scenario would have suited him. The patient had stated that all the cardiac ablation would do, if it worked at all, would be to help him to see his next birthday. He didn't want to see his next birthday from a bed in a room in a nursing home. For him, that would have been worse than death. He was ultimately transferred to the palliative care floor and died a few days later, surrounded by his family. Really, for him, the best-case scenario was the one he chose for himself and not the one the healthcare team wanted him to choose. You know, it can be hard enough to live our lives without having to decide what other people would want for themselves. There's really only one instance that I can think of where it's pretty universally accepted that somebody's quality of life is poor. These people have trouble eating. They don't get to sleep. They can't regularly manage their hygiene. They're constantly fatigued, and they have difficulty even leaving the house. And these people, these people are the parents of newborns. Yet no one suggests that their quality of life is so poor that someone needs to talk to them about hospice and code status. Now, I hope you guys laughed at that. Usually when I give that example in person, people really laugh. I don't know how it'll play out for the podcast, but I hope you did laugh. So getting back to the consults that say, patients with poor quality of life want, quote, everything done, please talk to them about treatment options and code status. I infer something kind of harsh from that statement. I hate to say it, but, but what I infer is that someone has judged another person's life not to be worth living. That's what the phrase quality of life used in this way has come to mean to me. I hope that when you're taking care of people whose lives are different than what you would want for yourself or different than what you would want for somebody you love, that you take a minute and consider that this life may still have quality to the person who is experiencing it or to the people who love him or her. It's up to us to find out what's important to our patients and help them live their best life regardless of anyone else's opinion. They may think that they're ready to let their lives follow their no its normal course and, and forego CPR or resuscitative attempts. Or they may want, quote, everything done. For people who have a good understanding of their illnesses and know what's important to them, they can make informed decisions about treatment options specific to what matters to them. If we know what's important to our patients, we can make recommendations to them so they can have the lives that they want to live, even if it's different than what we would choose for ourselves. Now, before we go on, this phrase, do everything or everything done, that's shorthand you need to be careful about. It's definitely not something you should use with patients when you're asking about treatment options. But that's for another podcast. 
now it's time for our reflection. It's from Dr. Michael Willoughby. It was from a day that we were rounding together when he told a patient that he wanted to help him have more quantity of life. He said he wanted each of his days to be packed with as much life as possible. I thought that was kind of brilliant. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thank you for listening today. I hope you'll come back next time. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give it a good rating and review on your podcast app. If you have suggestions for topics you'd like covered, please go to our website, thepalliators.com, and send us a message. You can also go to the website for our show notes to find links to the articles and tools. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Until next time, bye for now. Bye.